are living in unprecedented times, times of great threat to our environment, our health, and our freedom. Environmental degradation has resulted in the loss of lives, livelihoods, cultures, knowledges, and heritages. We are in the midst of a global-scale environmental crisis, climate change. What are our leaders doing to fight against this? What are you doing to fight against this? Welcome to Environmentally Speaking, a podcast of the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council. The environment is everything, literally. And on this podcast, no environmental topic is off limits. For our returning listeners, we have rebranded. You would have been with us from what is now season one, COVID chat, where we discussed the multidimensional impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you all for sticking with us. I'm your host, M. Christie, environmental geochemist and sociologist and associate director of the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council. And I'm Davia Hilton, co-lead of the Research, Policy Development and Advocacy Group of the JCCYC. This season, we will be going to see Nauru, a small island developing state northeast of Australia, triggered a two-year rule in 2021 by applying to the International Seabed Authority, the ISA, to mine the deep sea for polymetallic nodules. These nodules contain multiple minerals said to be necessary to support the production of battery components for electric vehicles and other renewable energy technologies. However, the push to start mining has not been accompanied by adequate data to prove that the purported benefits will be worth the cost of deep sea mining. This podcast is meant to unpack all the issues associated with deep sea mining and the current trajectory of decision making by the International Seabed Authority and the publicly expressed issues of transparency. So so we officially welcome you to season two of Environmentally Speaking, Diving Deep brought to you in partnership with the Sustainable Oceans Alliance. To help set the stage for the conversations we will be having in the upcoming episodes, we have two brilliant guests joining us. All right, so there's JCCYC's Research Policy and Advocacy team member, Jada Houghton, and Environmental Geochemist, Kaden... Kaden Coates. So sorry for that, Kaden. So we want to ask you, welcome you both. Hi, friends. Welcome. Uh, First, we would like you to introduce yourself. Give us a little background of your work. Uh, Kaden, can you go first? Hi. So I am an MPhil candidate at the University of the West Indies in the Department of Chemistry. And my research has been reconstructing environmental change, which has occurred in Kingston Harbor over the past 100 years and i'm hoping to be good i'm hoping to graduate this year it's me i hope you do all right thank you and jada what about you well i'm i'm not as far ahead as kadeen but i am currently finishing up my bachelor's degree in environmental biology and i'm also hoping to graduate this year so yeah there's that i have great hopes in both of you thank you yeah thanks um i mean not to worry jada you're all the way there the same place i I, I code switch a lot (laughs) um (laughs) so let me try to stick to the english for our non-patwa speaking listeners but we are all at the same place when it comes to this 
issue of deep sea mining because you know not a lot of information is out in the public space about what it entails uh, in terms of what are the impacts or you know just like legit there's very little information out there so um we want to just um introduce our listeners to what deep sea mining is um briefly before we get into the conversation so you know to our listeners deep sea mining is a process of extracting minerals um through mining of course and deposits from the ocean floor at depths of 200 meters or more so just to give us a, a sort of visualization of what um of how deep that is you know the deepest point on earth um that we've discovered so far is in the pacific ocean it's called the mariana Trench, and that's over eleven thousand meters deep and for comparison the empire state building in manhattan new york is a, a world-renowned at 380 meters tall the eiffel tower in paris is 330 meters tall and the statue of liberty is less than 100 meters from the base to the tip of the torch so from that we can get an idea of just how um i don't know close or far from the surface 200 meters is but um that's where the limit starts when it comes to deep sea mining and you know there's been a lot of conversation about what sort of life exists at that depth and you know stuff like that it's been thought to be a lifeless void for decades even right so the first the first question the first thing i want to um throw to jada um you know what sort of life exists in the sea at 200 meters and below all right so in regards to that i guess i can give a bit of background in terms of how the sea essentially or the oceans are divided or set up or how they're studied so essentially you have some you have different ways that it can be divided but for the sake of what we're speaking about i'll use these terms so you have something called the neurotic zone and the pelagic zone so neurotic is essentially everything close to shore you're still on the shelf of the of the you know island so you have it's not that deep pelagic essentially talks about open waters so when they speak about having um the deep sea being anything below 200 meters above 200 meters you have something called the epipelagic zone that is where light and everything is able to fully penetrate the water so i guess that is probably the best explored zone because you know it's not very you know i would say it's not hard to explore you don't have to compete with a lot of things and you have light for the entirety of the zone so you know it's it's quite explored and it's what we'd be most familiar with and then below 200 meters you have the mesopelagic so meso means middle i guess you can think of it like that and they call it the twilight zone uh i guess you can relate it to what we understand about twilight not the series people I mean, just the normal term of what twilight is. So the point between, you know, day and night. So it's, it's exactly like that, where you have very faint amounts of light penetrating in that zone. So it's from about 200 meters to about 1,000 meters. I think that's about what it is. And 
this zone is where things kind of get strange in terms of the kind of animals that you can find. But there's a wide diversity of, um, you still have fish and other organisms like that there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite all right. You have the bioluminescence, so the creatures that kind of glow. And mm -hmm. then after that, you have the bathypelagic, bathypelagic zone. Yeah, that's it. And I guess it's the, where you really don't have any light going. And um, that's where things kind of start getting more difficult in terms of the conditions. So again, you have zero light. You kind of have the drop in temperature as well. So, um, and you have an increase in pressure because we have to realize that the further you go down, all of the weight of the water above you is what's pressing down and giving you pressure. So the further down you are, the harder it is to exist within the ocean. So at that depth, you have a lot of sperm whales because that's where typically where they go. They move between that and higher levels in throughout the time. And uh, you have a lot of squid, stuff like that. Um, yeah. So it's it's still it's still quite diverse in the amount of animals that you can find there. So you have squid, you have some deep deeper sea sharks, um, and the animals start looking progressively more strange as you go <laughs> down. Again, because they've had to adapt to certain conditions. So you'd have animals that, as the further you go down, eyes don't make any sense because there's no light, so they can't see. So eyes kind of become they're still there, but it's like not really useful so they they yeah they don't really use them so they more focus on um chemical cues or smell stuff like that so that's what those animals would be more adapted to and after that you kind of just really have the zones getting more dark more cold and you have less fish and other organisms like that so you more have like invertebrates or as we are uh, for the sake of the non-science persons, just animals that don't have a backbone or a lot of them won't necessarily have bones or they don't have cartilage instead. And you just have, you have worms, all kinds of little critters. That's, that's what it starts heading towards, again, because of the kind of conditions that they have to um, compete with at that depth. So, yeah. Um, but you just... It's, Sorry, okay. I was going to say some of these other critters you're talking about, we don't actually know them. So you're describing the ones that we do know. Yeah, and that's the thing with um, the deep sea exploration as well. You have several um, universities and other um, you know, independent organizations that are doing deep sea exploration. Um, for instance, there's this one on YouTube that literally publishes all of their dives persons can go and watch them and you hear them in real time um, identifying some of the animals that they may know and then saying wow i've never seen this before because we still have to remember that while it's not necessarily new in terms of like what we would consider um deep sea exploration is still young because the what should i say the machinery or the you know kind of vehicles that were needed to go down there are about the 90s 80s that they started becoming more popular and persons were able to go to that depth so um 
you don't it's not highly explored and with the deeper that you go again as i said the conditions get progressively more adverse and you have um the terrain to compete with as well so we might think on earth you know we have mount everest and all of those hype you have mount everest in the ocean and more higher than mount everest and deeper (laughs) deeper the deep trenches all of those things so it's kind of hard to maneuver machinery into those little spaces so it is still it's still an emerging field deep sea exploration so every time they go down they still find new things and they're still sampling because you still have organisms within the sediment that they're finding and you can't just look at the sediment and say oh this is that you have to take samples and then go up and study them under microscopes or things like that and then you know relate and see what's there and what's not there stuff like that so it's still an emerging field and every time they go down species are still being discovered right so, so uh, sorry David, before we move on to the next question because i know it's burning as well um so i heard two things and i just want to make sure that you know we're all on the same page like the deeper you go um down into the ocean the more um what's the word i'm looking for specially adapted yeah so like closer to the surface we have lots of the pressure low we have wool heap of light yeah temperature okay temperature nice and right so lots of different types of organisms diversity rich at the surface and that's what we're used to and then you start to go down less light um higher pressures so the types of organisms are gonna be different because they have to be specially adapted so regular fish the the, the, the parrots and the flounders and the, the sprats that we see at the the shallow the shallow depths we won't find them at the deep sea no again right. you you just have to think of it in the in terms of that you know that because of the they have a thing in ecology essentially where they talk about um I'm trying to activate the knowledge, but essentially it describes the way that species are distributed based on the kinds of conditions that are within the environment. So in the middle, you essentially have the most species. And this is where, you know, it's like a hotspot for them. So you have all of the conditions that are essentially necessary for their survival. They're not under stress. And like Goldilocks, the it's just right. Yeah, it's just right. And then... <laughs> It's, it's shaped like a bell. Um, and then the further you go out towards the edges is where you have the edge tolerance, zones of tolerance. That's what I'm thinking of. So right. you have those um, conditions that are coming in and inducing stress. So you have less and less animals towards those conditions because they have to be adapted in, in those adverse conditions. And you also said something about it being diverse. So yes, in in um in terms of having diversity has to do with having a lot like more multiple species and more than one of the same species. So it it's it's kind of an abstract thing. And yeah. in the we know we don't really want to confuse the people in with too much. Yeah, I know, but as I say, because <laughs> I think with the with the with the um diversity thing, a lot of persons think that the further you go down you lose you do yeah. have mm. less organisms and because you have to be specialized but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a diverse area 
yeah that yeah. that yeah that's a very good point um i going i going to hand over the mic now but like um there's this article there's this um piece that was published two days ago one two days ago of uh deep sleep exploration in the um let me get it right the clarion clipperton zone which is the zone of interest that we're going to be talking about and they found 39 on previously unknown species so there we go so Kadeen wanted to jump in so <laughs> yeah i mean the the, the the bottom of the sea is like one of the it's one of the last unexplored frontiers. I actually explore more about, we actually know more, a little bit more about space than we know about the bottom of the oceans, right? I mean, I think approximately only 0.001% of the bottom of the seas has been mapped. Um, or, you know, so there's so much that remains on Explored. So there is definitely, as Jada was saying, you know, there's just so much that we still don't know. And it's so hard to, to know because we have not really explored it. And primarily because of the challenges in getting the equipment and the interest to, to, to probably explore this region. Yeah. Yes, very much so. So what I'm hearing over and over again is that we really don't know enough about the deep sea and we don't have the information to move forward with deep sea mining. Mm -hmm. So another point of information that I wanted to get across, I wanted to ask you both, is what kind of processes does the marine environment help to regulate? And what have these processes been impacted? Like how have they been impacted by human activity over time? And you can both open that um that discussion, either one of you, that's fine. All right, let I'll, me I'll, I'll let Kadeen go, go first, you know, since I was speaking before. <laughs> so, you know, you can, you can take Oh, one of the most important functions of the, our oceans is to serve as it helps, it helps to modulate our climate because it is a carbon sink right so it, so that is one of the main functions of our oceans and it also helps to modulate just just the climate in just the climate in general that is that is just the, that is the main function of the ocean yeah. It really does. So what does human activity, like what does it cause with, re with regard to that particular function? So because we have been burning fossil fuels, we have been releasing a lot more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and that has been leading to ocean acidification, which um, pretty much a lot of the organisms there in the, in the oceans have their have their shells made from calcium carbonate, right? It's a special mineral, and this mineral is very sensitive to changes in acidity. And as more carbon dioxide, you know, you can't think of think of soda, right? We know that soda is acidic, right? And it has carbon dioxide dissolved in the liquid, which forms carbonic acid. So these organisms that have these shells 
as the as the pH decreases, that is, as it becomes more acidic, they can they cannot build their shells. And some of these organisms that actually um, have calcium carbonate shells help to trap carbon dioxide. So they are primary producers, right? But because they can't build their shells, they can't capture the carbon. So they capture the carbon because they are primary producers. They use that carbon dioxide, they use carbon dioxide to make food. All right. So as we put more carbon dioxide in the air, we increase the acidity, we prevent these organisms from pretty much surviving. And they they can't function, they can't do that role of helping to absorb carbon dioxide and helping to modulate our climate. And there is a, there is a breakdown in the, in the functioning of um, interaction between the different spheres. Right, so not just a breakdown of the function of the ocean and the function of these organisms, but their very survival relies on it. Um, for those who have limited chemistry knowledge, let me see if I can break it down with my very limited chemistry knowledge as well, <laughs> is that calcium carbonate is similar to limestone, right? Right. So imagining limestone falling apart in an acid solution. Right. It's like chalk in vinegar. Chalk in vinegar, right. Right. They can also just use the example of like, you know, when persons use vinegar and baking soda. Right, because baking soda is calcium bicarbonate, right? Mm -hmm. So it is basic in nature, and then we mix it with the acid, which is the vinegar, you're going to see that reaction come up. And we don't want that for our oceans, none at all. Right. And you get, you get an A plus, Davia. <laughs> <laughs> and you. one point I, I forgot to add is that the, the carbon dioxide is what is causing the warming and the oceans help to absorb this excess carbon dioxide. And by absorbing it, however, it becomes acidic and creates problems. Right. And that's not good for our coral reefs either. Right. Yeah. Uh, and any classifying organism, any organism that uses... um calcium carbonate to make their 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 shell. So it has these knock-on impacts. Yeah. Um I also wanted to add he covered you know the chemistry, you know, acid and thinking and whatever, you know, for the for the chemistry brain people. There is also what we need to realize again or consider the ocean and water in general absorbs heat, right? So it's also there as something to help regulate the temperature of the earth. Because, you know, that's why people who live close to the sea will always realize that the place kind of feel more cool because the water is literally right there. Or when they live at rivers, close to rivers, are, so those areas are cooler because the water is there to absorb the heat. Mm -hmm. um, the ocean also serves that purpose in where it will absorb excess heat in the atmosphere. And uh, we have the... Um, Thing that we're come we're fighting with right now in terms of rising ocean temperatures no it might not seem like a lot when you go and look up how much it has increased by because i think it's like one point something degrees fahrenheit and that is you know it seems like a small amount to us because that's not really a lot however in the context of the ocean which is essentially one of the most 
it should be the most one of the most stable environments in terms of all of the systems that it has in place to maintain um its stability or not to let the conditions move beyond a specific point it's a lot because now we do see where we have a lot of coral bleaching events from about the 1970s until about until now because i think we're in the middle of one currently if i if i can remember correctly but we've had several coral bleaching events over um the course of about what, 50 years um so there is that in terms of the rising ocean temperatures again it does not seem like a lot but to those organisms it is a lot so you have you also have those things that um the ocean would serve to do that we have essentially kind of i guess we we're abusing that because you know we're just pumping out more into the atmosphere and you know we have global warming and all of those things so it's, it's literally just doing its function but in doing its function it's essentially self-sabotaging if that makes sense so yeah there's also that well its function was to sequester some amounts of carbon from the atmosphere but because we've been overproducing carbon it's it's too much carbon in the sea now and that's why it's becoming acidified and not able to sustain the life that it was able to sustain hence the coral bleaching and once the corals are gone people we're we're looking at other organisms going as well because a lot of organisms depends on depend on these habitats um yeah go ahead oh i, I was <laughs> i just wanted to wait though it wasn't it wasn't the acidification um what kadeen had said with the, the acidification it does affect the corals in terms yeah. of we understand the reaction that would occur well, again, I'm 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 referring just to the just to the heat, just yeah. to the heat. That is essentially what is what we are yes. throwing off. So that is course, a part of um, it. Yeah. Just just for the again for the, the non-science listeners, um, it coral bleaching is when the, the little dinosaur yeah is the big word then the, the, the organisms yeah. that live uh, on yeah. the corals uh, migrate. So yeah, the coral itself, the coral itself, you know, is not it. Uh, the coral is one something. But mm-hmm. the coral is made up of many things, right? So it's like tenement yard, right? Yes. So you have multiple living in one area. So that is what a coral is. It is one big sum, but multiple organisms or multiple animals live in that, right? So when the temperature gets too hot, right? Them say, wow, no man, this is too hot. What is going on? Call right? the landlord. And call then, the landlord. Yeah, <laughs> call somebody right <laughs> and them say no man the place is too hot so we need to evacuate so they essentially expel um what would, yeah so they expel them then just kick them out right and then can't make their food after so everything just goes downhill and that is why they look white because mm-hmm. what they expel is what gives them the color yes. so that is that is the thing yeah. yeah they rub very hard I'm definitely getting a better picture now. So yes, it's the carbon that they're sequestering that's um, causing acidification, but just the heat itself that we know that it absorbs during the day. And water usually has a high heat capacity, but because it is so much heat due to global warming, it's way too much. Um, Like you were saying, 1.5 might seem, uh, 1 point something might seem a, a little bit to us, but we know that globally, to raise the temperatures globally like that, we were trying to avoid going to two degrees Celsius. And then even then, Caribbean activists had to point out it's not just two degrees. We've been seeing effects already for decades now. 
So 1.5 to stay alive, uh, but, it is a huge deal. I know it's, it's so funny because that 1.5 versus two degrees thing is completely anthropocentric. Like yep. that's for us as humans to survive. Um, like ocean, ocean um, animals and plants, like it's less than one degree change that will affect them. Like ab- above one degree, I think it was like 0.8 degrees. I think I saw in, in this article, you, can, you, are, you guys can fact check. Um, that's completely allowed, but like it's a much lower temperature to, for other forms of life, non-human life, to so, to be impacted by the changes that we're seeing. Like we have not, I don't think we've gotten to 1.5 yet, and we're seeing on land wildfires that are decimating um, wildlife um, in, in, in some countries in, in Africa. We're seeing it in, in the United States as well. So it's it's up a in very, Australia and Australia. In Brazil. California. I'm glad, you bring up, I'm glad you bring up Australia because you know we're talking about coral reefs, and I wanted just to point the listeners to um, a bit of information. So the Great Barrier Reef. I grew up in high school hearing about the Great Barrier Reef. You know this marvelous um, coral reef in um, Australia. Since 2020, that was two years ago. Um, there was a study that found that that Great Barrier Reef, the Great Barrier Reef, because there's only one Great Barrier Reef, has lost more than half, 50% of its corals since 1995 due to warmer seas um, driven by climate change. So, like, the information is out there, so I don't know why people are acting like, you know, we don't know that this is where we are potentially heading down a slippery slope. But... um, uh, if I could add M, uh, mm-hmm. if for a local for local context, because you know we can think about the Great Barrier Reef. And I said that's so far away; it has nothing to do with us. But I, for for me, I've gone on field trips for labs um, into the coral reefs that are off of um, Kingston Harbour, like outside mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we went out there, I recall uh, my professor at the time. She said that. She came to this same reef when she was doing her bachelor's. And um, she said over the years um, coming here, she has seen the decline. Because she said when she came here, the boats could hardly find a place to maneuver through the water because there was just such an extensive coral reef um, system out there. And when I went out there, I never that music. We saw roughly the same... Um, species of coral throughout the entire area and it was like it's it i wouldn't say it's a small amount but compared to what is out there what used to be there it's a small amount now and it is only the more resilient corals that are left out there so the little other one them already can't manage their pressure they've they've gone so it's, it's really nothing out there anymore yeah so I mean, you said that just now and my spirit dropped because I've been thinking about all the environmental changes that I've lived through in Jamaica. I won't tell people my age, but trust me, I've seen a lot of changes. <laughs> but <laughs> we need to, we, we're going to push the conversation along. Um, so, you know, this whole deep sea mining thing um, is coming because, you know, we've been calling on the oil and gas companies for a long time to transition away from fossil fuels because we've been living the impacts of climate change, right? 
But what they're saying now is that in order for, in order for them to transition to renewables, um, you know, they want to scale up the production of renewable um, technologies and stuff like that. They're saying that they need the minerals that are in the deep sea. So, you know, you know when we're introducing the podcast, we spoke about polymetallic nodules. So they have, remind me, Davia, nickel, um, cobalt. cobalt, and which one I want? Manganese. Manganese, right. So those are the three minerals that they say that they need, they absolutely need, and the only place they can get it is at the bottom of the ocean, right? So they need those to make the renewable solutions scalable. So I, I just want to, to, to sort of, you know, shed some light, I want to shed some light on, you know, how these minerals are formed. And I, I feel like that would put it into context why we feel like taking them out of the ocean is a bad idea. So I don't know if, Karin, you want to say that one? Yeah, I'll, I'll do that one. So deep sea minerals are concretions, which are hard, compact deposits formed by the precipitation of several... Oh, friend, friend, let me stop you, let me stop you, let me stop you. <laughs> concretion, <laughs> concretion, precipitation. <laughs> Gotta make it down. So a concretion, concretion is something that's insoluble and hard right so by, that's what i mean by precipitation so it's something that it it's formed from two soluble it's formed from soluble components and it, it that forms something that's insoluble right so these concretions are some it's pretty much hard rocks considered like mm. hard rocks that you can um which are di- different from the the sediment Okay, the, sorry, is concretion from concrete similar right it's, it's okay, similar, okay. It's similar <laughs> right so they are formed when several soluble metals metals species come together right all right all right but let's get more specific to the polymetallic nodules which are the right. which are the ones that they're most interested in, in so what they're most Mm, so those polymetallic nodules are formed. So what happens is that you have, they typically form around something that's or, or organic, like a shark tooth. shark tooth or a piece of shell. So what happens is that the metals precipitate and they start to precipitate on the surface of that and it, it keeps growing. Now the thing is that this thing, these nodules, take millions of years to grow right so once they start precipitating more more keeps forming and then more keeps forming and it keeps growing until it becomes the size typically a, a good size nodule would be the size of a potato right and these nodules are typically formed are found at depths of 3000 to 6000 meters below sea level and you will typically find these nodules on the as jada was saying earlier the, the um the bottom of the sea has many geological formations so you would typically find these on these very vast flat surface of the ocean known as an abyssal plain or you can find them on the tops of the mountain now there's also a, another type of deposit that is formed on hydrothermal vents 
Now on land, we have hot springs. And below, on the bottom of the sea, sometimes we have hydrothermal vents. And those are located between tectonic plates. Now, in, at, these, um, at these hydrothermal vents, you will tend to find um, sulfide deposits of metals such as zinc, silver, gold, and lead. But um, as the, the main focus, however, is on the polymetallic nodules that I was that I, that I was talking about earlier. And so these the nodules are um, important for pretty they, 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 they claim that it is important for detransitioning from our, our carbon centric um, way of life to something that relies on um, batteries. So the transition to the green, it's green, this green um, state of living, right? So um, that's pretty much how Right. So, like, <clears throat> like, <laughs> listen. I'm a chem I'm a chemistry I'm a chemistry postgraduate student, and like this just blew my mind a while ago. Like, key here, I think, um, is 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 how long these nodules take to form, mm -hmm. right? So, essentially, there's nobody alive today who will live to see the formation of another stuff nodule. Right. Once you remove those, and by virtue of that, like they're non-renewable. They're, right? they're right. Um, and when you think, so you mentioned precipitation, and I feel like I feel like we can unpack that a little bit and sure. let let the people understand why that process is so critical to maintaining the environment in the deep sea. So, and <laughs> forgive us, but two chemists going to talk right now. <laughs> so, like, so we know how precipitation works. So, like, for example, guys. You have like um, let's say, I want to say like you have a bottle of honey at home, but probably not the best example. But you know, you buy the bottle of honey at the grocery store, and you go home and then you start using it and leave it for too long, and then you start to look at crisps, look at solid things around the edge. That's not good honey, first of all. But also, what's happening there is precipitation, right? Mm -hmm. The sugar is coming out of solution. So, like, precipitation literally only happens when you have too much of that particular thing. It dissolved in the solution. So, we say it's saturated. Mm -hmm. So, essentially, what happens with precipitation is that it, the, 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 those minerals come out of solution to maintain an equilibrium, mm -hmm. right? So, what we're doing by pulling those nodules out of the deep sea is that we're forcing, right, I mean, it's going to occur over a longer time scale than we are able to perceive mm -hmm. in our lifetime. But what we're doing is we're forcing the deep sea environment to produce more nodules in, a, I'd say, a quicker turnaround time than it should be doing naturally. And we don't know what that's going to that going, um, cause for the organisms that live there, right? That makes sense. Like, I feel like it makes sense, but... <laughs> To be honest, what, what I know about that, I think the mechanisms behind the formation, I think that people aren't one hot, because again, as Jada was saying, the deep sea is just so underexplored. Some of the mechanisms behind the formation of these nodules, it, people are, there's, there's still so much controversy around them. There's no real clear mechanism or way, by mechanism, I mean the way, the, the, the pathway in which these minerals are formed. But one of them, it, it is likely due to 
the precipitation um, of these um, of these metals, metals, minerals. Yeah, yeah, these metals. And again, I think that the pressure, and again, they're formed, they're only found at certain depths. The pressure likely plays a yes. role in the formation of these minerals as well. And then the, the conditions, I know that they have, it has to be well oxygenated, right? So, <clears throat> you know, the, so this is, this is again very much uncharted territory in terms of understanding even, even the formation, like the exact yeah. understanding, it's, it's, it's just unclear. And like, so, and, and again, uh, what, what are the things that um, has us in this place of, you know, trying to use our chemistry knowledge and theories and whatever to, to kind of, you know, think about possible, make possible routes for formation of these knowledge is that it's, it's difficult to model um, mm -hmm. the deep sea, the deep sea. It's difficult to create the exact environment in a laboratory setting of what exists in the deep sea. And so we, we are, we are not yet at the point, science is not yet at the point to adequately, right, figure out exactly what these processes entail. And like, I, I just feel like we just don't know enough to even make an assumption um, of what might happen or make a, make a, make a sort of a prediction of what sort of changes might happen if we carry out this activity. So it's, like, yeah. It's so interesting that you say that because we would have been discussing this and I, I arrived at the opposite conclusion of what you just arrived at, where you think that it would be producing more of these nodules because of the excess in, um, the, the excess in that would be there. I was thinking that it would not be able to reproduce these nodules because of the change in environment. In one of our many talks that we were, ha we were having, I, I think had with Jada. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, either way, because you're, you're, you're changing the conditions. And remember, you know, we are sending down machines to extract these nodules. And we don't know what those machines will leave behind. Yeah. Right. So, yes, yeah, with that, I was going to say, because you see, when you start talking about the chemical something, I think what you mean, right? What I learned, right, is, a, is, is that you cannot reproduce the chemical composition of seawater in a lab because you have major elements where you know, say, what I find in there, right? So you have, you know, your oxygen, your carbon, other things yeah, like that, right? Yeah. And then you have trace elements. And that Right, the name alone can just show you what it trace. It's so hard to find. The only thing I know about seawater composition is that it has 13.8 grams per liter of chloride. <laughs> that is the right? only thing I know about seawater composition. <laughs> no, that's a, and that's the point that I'm trying to make, right? Like you cannot you cannot replicate seawater. Because yeah, them trace element there, you have to have I don't know how you would be able to find the exact because some 0 0.0000 something, something right, right. And it's just it's just a lot and persons have to remember like even like aquariums and those things like big aquariums they can't make the seawater you know them have to go out collect seawater sea and come and put it in the place they can't make yeah. it so yeah. you going down there and throwing off all of that now even though the ocean has its little you know system where it would usually use you don't know how much would be thrown off from the entire mining process. 
So it's, it's I don't know. I don't and know. It's, it's you, you make a very good point, Jada, and I want to underscore it because we might, even though we're, um, three of us are, are scientists on this podcast um, episode, and, well, let me not say three of us are scientists. Three of us are natural scientists, so to speak. Um, I know David might engage in some science from the sociology <laughs> perspective. I'm also a sociologist, so I, I, I identify with that. Thank but you. we do not ever, in any case or circumstance as researchers, test every variable in any experiment that we're doing. So even when we do water quality analysis, we want, we check for the things we know exist and can cause impact and we test for the things that we can test for right so there are there are things that exist in the deep sea that we probably don't in the, not, i'm not even talking about orgasm or, organisms right now there are <laughs> there are chemicals there are particles molecules that might exist in seawater that we don't even know are there so we can't test for them so like there's so many unknowns. So, like, I just wanted to underscore that point, Jada. Thanks for bringing it up. And, and, and our next point, too, Mario, um, um, is that these, a lot of these modern, um, nodules are formed due to microbes. So, there is the, 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 the junction of, of course, the biogeochemistry where you have these organisms that play an important role in, 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 in catalyze. So some of these organisms contain catalysts, which will help in the formation and the precipitation, I use the fancy word, the precipitation of these polymetallic nodules. Yeah. So when we go down there, we start digging up. We don't, we are disturbing the, 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 the ecosystem. We don't know how or what is going to happen in terms of the formation or none or lack thereof? Uh, it, I was, it was interesting that you mentioned that because I had um, mentioned this to Davia previously when we were discussing this, that um, with, at the deep sea, you have to understand, microbes are one of the most resilient things on Earth. Like anywhere you expect not to find life, I guarantee you're going to find a microbe. Right, they. I think it was the University of Hawaii. Don't quote me, but I think it was them. Um, or for the sake of just not calling names, I'll just say a scientific um research. They had gone down and they had tested for the some. They were trying to see how the microbial community is affected by disturbances. So they made so they dug like a a trench. They tested it before to see like the proportion of microbes that were there. They dug the trench. And then, you know, they left it for a couple of years and they went back to the same area and tested the trench and then what was decided. And in the trench, it's like, not never recover. And I years, this was years in the making. So that alone can just give you an example of what could happen in terms of the microbial community that is there with the whole disturbance that would be happening from sending those machines and just the entire process overall. Right, right. And these microbes and microorganisms are absolutely vital to the environment, the very unique, specific, irreplicable environment that you were speaking about and at the deep sea. Uh, 
So, yeah, I, have a question, I have a question before you move on. David. You said that the, the, the testers and the microbes didn't recover? Yeah, it's not that they didn't necessarily recover, but the recovery, the turnover rate essentially was, was slow. So okay. when so they just did not see a, di a diverse community in the area that they disturbed versus the areas that weren't disturbed. Okay. You had described to me at a, a, a talk before, because we've been having many discussions about this, that life at the deep sea or in the sea in general just is very slow. It's a very slow life. And so they have a, a lot they take a much longer time to recover and to adapt to things than um animals or plants on land so when we have some sort of interaction when human activity takes place in the sea it takes it takes years for it to recover from or little activity yeah it, i mean it i don't want to say this because it is controversial but um in terms of what Kadeen had mentioned hydrothermal vents right so allegedly, people, this is not my view per se, but I'm just saying what the people said, right? They were saying that, you know, remember the people said life originated in the ocean. If you want to agree with that, agree with that. If you don't, don't. I'm not taking a stance right here. I'm just saying what people them said, right? And they were pointing out that the hydrothermal vents, right? Essentially, they have created an ecosystem and an environment in the absence of sunlight. There is no other environment on Earth essentially, that, that is able to create the level of diversity and just independence without sunlight that they have seen around hydrothermal vents and just the deep sea in general, right? So when you think of it in that context, this is an area that, by right, not really supposed to have nothing. It, it's not supposed to have life existing and persisting at, in the conditions that it is, but it does. So it when you think that it's just, you know, it's just how I like right now. My, my, because I study different belief and knowledge systems, so I have to jump in right here and and correct something you just said. Like you said, you know, like these areas should not have, la have life existing. Like we need to, we need to just dispel Spell that, that yeah. thought from so that's our minds. So in, in our minds, you know, it, it, because right. it's so far out, so you wouldn't es yeah. expect to see a kind of community like that, don't they? But it does have that. And yeah, that we alone need to, we should, need to, you know, need to really decenter, um, remove the human um, ideals and ideologies from how we look at these non-human yeah. um, or unearthly environments. Because we we're gonna continue to be surprised. I know I won't be because I I just expect anything to pop up tomorrow <laughs> and say here I am <laughs> with my life. But that way, just spoke about. Um, it was a scientific study that was published. Um, the, 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 I think it was one belief system that says the, the volcano at the bottom of the sea, like the sharks or whatever came out of it. But then there were some previous studies that showed that these sharks actually adapted over a couple thousands of years or centuries or whatever to actually exist in that high temperature, high sulfur environment. I fact checked that one. <laughs> so what we're getting from in here is that um, these specific unique habitats that we want to mine have the ability to create life and we were 
only privy to that information through exploration, which is what we've been calling for this entire time, more deep sea exploration before mining, more information before that we, we get down there. So moving into our final question, given the information that we currently have in the public space, limited as it is, but given that information and what you've shared with us, do you believe that it is worth the risk to mine the deep sea? And Karen, you can go first. Personally, I don't, because again, we don't have enough information about the possible implications of deep sea mining because it's such an un, under an unex, underexplored environment. But one of the possible, one of the possible fallouts that I can see happening is the disturbance of the sediment and the cycling of nutrients and the sequestration of carbon and what happens how the carbon is sequestered is that all of that so these organisms in the um surface of the oceans mainly the phytoplankton they convert carbon dioxide they, they convert carbon they, they pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they fuel themselves and then they feed other organisms, right? So, you, so everything in the ocean depends on your phytoplankton. And so when they die or when organisms poop and then tra they transfer their carbon to the bottom of the sea, right? And that becomes sequestered. And we don't know, in, I mean, we know what happens in sediments and the role of sediments in general, because different sediments operate differently, we are not sure how disturbing these sediments is going to affect this the whole carbon sequestration process. And so it will have, uh, and it can have, it can likely have a negative impact on us on land. And this is something that might not happen for now. Um, but it probably will and hopefully with time and research we will kind of be able to figure out more how these changes will impact us and the environment right and it would need time and it would need research thank you right. and jada what is your opinion do you believe that it is worth the risk no absolutely not i think it's done for lack of a better word but because, you know, just the idea of going into an area where you don't necessarily know about, right? And you're just going down there and saying, yeah, man, eat this. We're just going to take everything. Because right now, when you, when you look at it, every, every organization that is pushing this thing about marine um, exploration for the sake of mining, they're talking, oh, my God. There are trillion dollars worth of things that are okay. We get it. Yes, money in it, but the risks and the things that we essentially stand at losing. I don't think it is worth the money because at the end of the day, the money is only distributed to specific people, and then it now comes down to nobody else. So there is really no, you know, it's it's, it's not beneficial for everybody. Um, what Kaden was talking about with the, because I'll just give the kind of biological background, I guess, like with ecology and stuff, because he already covered the chemistry. 
what he was speaking about in terms of having debris from above falling down. That's marine. They call it marine snow because it kind of does look like that at that dip. It just looks like snow. And that is essentially what creates kind of like the bottom, the, the beginning of the food chain for deep sea organisms. Because remember that we don't have any light. And as he was saying before, you have um, phytoplankton, which are essentially marine plants, just tiny living organisms that do photosynthesis. And that would create the base of the food chain for, if, for, the, for the organisms above where light is available. Where no light is available, you can't expect photosynthesis to happen. So what you have is marine snow trickling down and the organisms that are down there depend on that. So the entire mining process with what they say about, you know, the, 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 the sediment plumes going up and then what they release down after they finish, set, um, you know, separating the nodules from the sediment. I think about it in the way that how will that affect that kind of food system for the organisms that are below it? Right? How would that disturb that entire process? We also have to consider the fact that we have currents in the ocean. So things are always moving. So they want to make it look like, you know, we're, we're mining in just this area, guys. Calm down. It's fine. It won't affect you over there and it won't affect you over there. It's just this area, not Nagoso. Because you're going to have currents moving between these areas, right? So who is this? Who knows if, if they do it here? Who is to say that you won't see effects in other parts of the ocean, right? You also have the noise pollution from it because there, so, there are some big machines that they're planning to put down there. And you have these organisms that would typically depend on sound for the, for, for the purpose of communication. How will that affect it? Because this, again, the noise will not just be local. The noise is going to extend beyond that local area that they're doing the mining. Because I'm pretty sure I've, I've read a paper that said that based on um, experiments that they've done, they would estimate that the noise from an operation, from a single vessel that was doing the mining, would extend about 500 meters. Or, or is it 5,000? I don't know. But it's enough. Enough, basically. Let's leave it at that. Enough outside of the area that they're having that. Mm -hmm. So that stands to disturb organisms that would depend on um, vocal vocalizations mm -hmm. for, for um, the sake of communication. So our whales, our dolphins, other organisms like that. You also have, again, you have fish that kind of school, right? So they are, they are organized in the large schools of fish and whatever. Them, remember, they kind of jump in and they respond to stimuli. So who is to say that when you have all of this going on, you won't disturb their natural migratory patterns? Because they're going to say all of this going on. They say, what is going on? You know, let's, let's leave or let's move. And, you know, it stands to disturb that entire process of migration and just the cycling. And then you have organisms that lay their larvae somewhere and they depend on the currents to carry them to an entire different area. Because that is what happened first species like lobster and other organisms that would you know have little larvae just drifting in the ocean so it stands to disturb that 
all of this is hypothetical, by the way. I'm just I'm just speaking based on the me just I put that disclaimer out there. I mean, I want nobody come fight me. No, I'm just saying yeah, the possibility. The possibility that these things remember, happen. remember, remember, people, you can fact check what you're saying, what we're saying if you if yeah. you don't want to you don't agree. It, but the the science if is you out there. Don't analysis. agree. Yeah, but I'm just I'm just speaking hypothetically based on what I would have learned and what I would have read. So there are all those things and Again, with what Kadeen said about just the cycling of nutrients, the seafloor is the end-all be-all for what is in the ocean in terms of the, the recycling process and what would be released and things like that and just how the entire cycle would, you know, go about itself. And I just don't, I don't, I don't think it's worth disturbing all of these things that we don't necessarily know. And again, what you were saying, M, about them just finding these animals just out there in the deep sea, like whosoever would have thought, right? But we have been saying this point that the oh, the deep seas have not been explored enough to for us to know the exact scope of what is to happen, and that is uh, that is why when I see them saying we are going to pursue this in a sustainable manner. They don't know what the context of sustainability is within the within deep sea mining because there's just not enough information out there to mm-hmm. create, you know, that kind of plan. Nobody knows what sustainability means. Let me just put that out there. Um, right. and I feel like the podcast is going to extend if I start ranting that term. Right. But, because <laughs> um, I just, just something quickly. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's just it can't be sustainable because again, the time it takes to but we're not going there today um so i was just fact checking what you were saying jada because that's what i do i'm here to spread the truth um apparently um sound the distance that sound traveled in in water of course um is it's dependent on the ocean temperature and pressure. So as a matter of fact, sound travels faster in water than it travels in air. So it makes sounds sound it makes sounds a lot louder in water. But like um it depends on ocean temperature and pressure in terms of just how far the sounds will travel. Um and we know that pressure increases as ocean depth increases. It was said that before. And apparently temperature only decreases up to a certain point um, after which it is very stable. So after a certain point, only pressure will continue to increase. However, the, the concluding statement on this and on this NOAA website, NOAA is national what, what, what NOAA mean again? National Ocean, Ocean and yeah, Air Administration. Like yes. Yeah, yes, like there that. are very NOAA is very big when it comes on to climate change and ocean and all them weather, weather stuff. So they are, they are a very reputable source. The, the concluding sentence in this paragraph says, these factors have a curious effect on how and how far sound waves travel. So there is no concrete um, statement on how, temp- how um, far sound waves will travel in, in the ocean based on what is on this website. So again, that's another point of uncertainty. We really don't they, they can say that you know the sound will impact us to a certain point, but really and truly 
we need to see the, we need to see the experiments we need to see the data we need to see how they figured that so we right. can be confident that what they're saying is true and the public can be appeased that what they're saying is in fact what will happen. This seems to be a recurring theme about um, the limited amount of information that we have and the fact that we can only speculate to what the effects could be, but we know that it will be far reaching. Um, as Jada said, it's just not, as both of you would have said, all of us agree that it's just not worth it. But as Jada said specifically, that it's not worth it even financially because not everyone will be affected by the money that is to be made. But we do know that everyone would be affected by, the, by, the, by whatever effects come about from deep sea mining. Because you mentioned the, the connectivity of the ocean, the fact that the ocean currents are there, it will be widespread even if they go in a specific area. So we've covered a lot today, and I want to thank you all so much for joining us for this interesting talk and sharing your opinions with us, your expertise. And I think we all learned a lot. So if we could take away three lessons from this podcast, it is... One, the absolute vitality that the ocean is for our planet in being a carbon sink, in regulating our climate, especially within this particular climate crisis that we have been facing for decades now. We need our oceans and we need to sustain it, preserve it, protect it. And then two, that deep sea mining, we just don't have enough information to do deep sea mining so that we, so we need space to learn we need more deep sea exploration and we need for a pause in the progression of deep sea mining we don't think july 2023 is a near enough timeline to be working with to go and disturb these very unique habitats and then if we could take a third lesson it is that the impacts will be, even though we don't know and we can't be certain because of the lack of information, it is that we can imagine that the effects will be widespread, even detrimental. So from what we're already speculating and imagining, we're seeing detrimental effects to the life below sea, at the deep, the depths of the deep sea, but also the organisms above in the water columns, the ones that depend on light and sound, specifically um, a quiet ocean for them to be able to communicate, but also to ourselves, humans, on, our, on the land part of the earth, we still need um, the oceans. Whether or not we live there, whether or not we, our livelihoods depend on it, we need it. And for some of us, it does in the fisheries industry. So thank you all again. Thank, thanks for that recap, Davia. Thanks, Kadeen. Thanks, Jada, for joining us. And thank you all to our listeners for tuning in. This has been a very um, insightful, educational, and fun discussion. So um, we're about to sign out. But before we go, we just want to say, you know, join us next week um, for the second episode in this podcast where we, where we will be discussing marine ecosystems, climate change mitigation, and small island developing states. This is Deep Diving.